be with you, and you made it. You lost an hour today, and you are still in church, so good job. Way to go, especially if you have children, that their sleep schedule is now all screwed up, so praying for you as well as you're praying for me on that one, but it's great to see you. Thanks for being here with us. My name is Corey. If we haven't met, uh, I'm the lead pastor here at GFC, and this is the very beginning of a new series called Marks of a Disciple, and this is actually our Easter series. We're starting it. That feels crazy to me because I feel like we just put away the Christmas trees and now here comes Easter, right? And it's supposed to be getting nicer outside. I don't know that I believe that with the snow and stuff that's been forecast, but we're moving into nicer times. Spring is coming, hopefully, and we're looking forward to Easter. We're looking forward to celebrating that with you. And one of the things that we've been traveling through this year, we've been using the book of Luke as kind of our blueprint, traveling through, learning what Luke has to say about who Jesus is. And so we're diving a little bit into who Luke says disciples are. Because as we move into Easter and we think about decisions we've made about who Jesus is and what we're going to celebrate and the fact that he died for us and rose again and all of that stuff that comes to the forefront of our minds at Easter, one of the questions we want to ask is, what does it actually look like to be someone who follows Jesus? And so one of the best ways we can do that is we can look at the men who decided to follow Jesus. One of the things that they had that we don't get is they actually got to spend three years living every day with Jesus, physically, like living with him, talking with him, eating meals with him, all that stuff. We don't get that. And so what we do get is we get Luke telling us about these times and what that looks like, and we get to dig into that. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at these different aspects of what we believe is true of someone who is a follower of Jesus and what that actually looks like in our lives. And so I want to start today with, with a question. And the question is this, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? What did you want to be when you were a little kid? What was your like perfect thing that you were going to be when you were little and you aspired to great things? What was it? You think of that thing. And now I want to ask you why it's still not that thing. Right? You think about that. When you were a kid, you had this great idea. When it, For me, when I started playing hockey when I was eight years old, I wanted to play for the Flyers. Shocker, I don't play for the Flyers, right? Somewhere along the line, things changed. And for you, maybe it was something else. Maybe you were getting really excited about being an astronaut. I've told you before, my daughter says she wants to be in the Olympics and be an astronaut. I said, hey, go for it. Please do it. I, I'm all for it. But we think about these things and we dream. And I'm not poo-pooing anything that any of us do, but here's what we didn't say. I want to be middle-level management, and that's where I want to settle, right? We didn't say, I want to play minor league baseball. That's probably not what our answer was. We had these ideas where we wanted to be great things, and we wanted to go as far as we could. We wanted to go to the moon, maybe. And then somewhere along the way, things changed. Now, sometimes those things are just logic, okay? I'm not athletic enough to play in the NHL. It's just not going to happen, or any other major league sport. It's just not going to be there. And maybe the thing that you wanted to do, it just didn't make sense, or it didn't pan out, or it didn't whatever. But we get to a point in life sometimes where we just kind of go, yeah, this is where I'm going to settle. This is where I'm at. And it's logical that that can happen, but why does it happen? And I think that that's actually one of the things. As we, This isn't one of the marks of the disciple, but here's kind of where I think there's an underlying piece where maybe sometimes we lose. I think one of the things to be an effective disciple is to actually be a dreamer. And here's another question I've asked you. Why do we dream so much bigger as kids than we do as adults? Why, is, why when we're children, do we get so excited? We have these grand ideas, and then as adults, we kind of dial them back. 
maybe sometimes it is just logical. Like we can't do the things we always set out to do. Or maybe we had somebody come along and say, why would you ever want to do that? Or we had somebody come along and say, why don't you pick something else that's more likely to happen? And we dial it back. But at some point in our life, we had these dreams. And I, and I want to preface this, and you'll see what I mean by this in the future. There's something to being a disciple where we kind of leave this idea of open of where we can dream of what God can do. And that's where I want to start our conversation today as we start this conversation about the marks of a disciple. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, okay? So you can go to Luke chapter 5 in your Bible or on your phone or on your tablet. Um, as usual, we have on the Next Steps cards Andrew told you about, we have this little QR code on the back. So if you scan that, it'll take you to our follow-along page on our website where you can get all the verses and all the notes ask a question. Those are always fun. Submit a prayer request. All that kind of good stuff. So in Luke chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. It says in verses 1 and 2, one day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Okay, let's just pause and get a little bit of context. If you've missed the last few weeks with us, We've learned about Jesus preparing for ministry. He has gone into the wilderness and fasted to prepare for ministry. He has been baptized, and he has begun to start to teach and do miracles. So when he, as he's starting to teach and do miracles, people are starting to show up. They're hearing things about him. They're wanting to hear the teaching. So they're flocking to him. So he finds himself in a situation where he's preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and so many people are coming, they can't hear him. So he turns around, he sees two boats, and so he decides he's going to maybe move towards these boats because, right, they didn't have amplification back then. They didn't have microphones. They had all this stuff. So they had to find ways to be able to talk to large groups of people at the same time. And so he thinks, okay, well, let's get in the boat, and I'll push out a little bit, and we'll use the water as his amphitheater, and he can teach to many more people. But the fishermen are already done fishing. They don't need their boats anymore. Maybe they're hanging out next to the boat. They're cleaning their nets, like, right? They're kind of in and amongst what's happening. And so Jesus turns around and realizes. So in verse 3, it says, Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. Now, now let's just pause and put ourselves in Simon's shoes. By the way, this is going to happen today. I know it. This is Simon, who will eventually be Peter. I guarantee you I will say Peter at some point today. Okay, I'm going to try and keep it in context and say Simon, but I don't think it's going to happen. Because my brain just reads Simon as Peter. But he's there. He's done. He's, he's done fishing. And this guy shows up and says, can I get in your boat and let's push out a little further? And so Simon actually says, yes. And so Jesus begins to teach from there. But I want us to kind of think about where Simon is at life in this point. Okay, Simon has, this is the way I would say it, Simon's lot in life was defined. He was an adult who had realized what he was going to be for the rest of his life. He had been given his job, and this was going to be the rest of his days. He was going to, we're going to find out in a minute, he's going to spend all night fishing, and then he's going to go home to his family. That was what he was going to do. And at some point in life, like in this culture, if you didn't know this, the best thing you could be was a rabbi or a Pharisee. They were looked on as, we, we look at Pharisees today and go, man, they had some problems, but they were high status in this culture. And so the way they got there was because they did schooling for a very long time. 
And one of the ways they did schooling back then was at, when you were good at schooling, you continued on. If you weren't good in school, you would just stop. Maybe if you were like me at some point in school, you realized you weren't great at certain things. You're like, please just let me stop, right? That would be nice if I could just go home at this point. But they wanted to keep going. But at some point, someone looked at Simon and said, you're not good enough to keep going to school. Go be a fisherman. Go learn what your dad did. And so they would get fishermen. They would get carpenter. They would get maybe a mason or something like that. They they would go and they would learn, and they were basically being told, this is what you're going to be. This is the rest of your life. So go do that. And this is where Jesus finds Simon. He has decided, or he it was decided for him, he was going to be a fisherman, and this was the rest of his life. And so Jesus shows up on this day and says, hey, can I use your boat to preach? And Simon says, yes. And we go on in verse 4. It says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Simon responds in verse 5. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. Now again, pause for a minute. He worked all night. Didn't catch a thing. What kind of mood do you think Simon is in at this moment? He's not in a good... And by the way, this is his livelihood. This wasn't a fishing trip that was for fun. This was a fishing trip that was, I need to catch fish in order to feed my family. I went out and worked all night and didn't catch anything. And Jesus comes along. By the way, he was already cleaning the nets. Jesus comes along, wants to borrow the boat. Find Jesus. I'll let you borrow the boat. That's fine. But then he says, let's go fishing again. And he very politely, Simon says, Jesus, I know what I'm doing. We were out all night doing this. And now you want me to do it again. And the reason they would fish at night was because the fish were more likely to come up to the surface. Remember, they're not using fishing poles. Maybe you've, maybe you've gone deep sea fishing. I went deep sea fishing one time on a trip. Uh, they, we were out there for three hours. None of us caught anything. And they would literally drive us around on the boat using the radar. And they're like, there, the fish are here. Start fishing. We're like, okay, great. All the fish are here. Not a thing. For three hours, this is what we did. I'm just telling you, after three hours, I was done fishing for a year. Simon going out at night and throwing out these nets and pulling them back in, throwing out these nets, pulling them back in, and he had to make money off of it. I would have been done. But he doesn't say no. And that begs the question, because I think in any normal situation, if this was just some random guy, Jesus just showed up and just said, hey, go fishing again, I think he probably would have been like, no, buddy, like we'll charter another boat another time, but like right now I need to go home. But interestingly enough, he doesn't say no. And why does he not say no? This is why, and if you're here last week, maybe you're putting together the pieces. This isn't the first time Jesus showed up in Simon's life. This isn't the first time. Simon, Jesus wasn't a stranger. Simon knew who Jesus was. Let's go back to chapter 4, verses 38 and 39. It says, after leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's home, where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everyone begged. Standing at her bedside, He rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. So Simon knew Jesus. Jesus had been to his house. And Jesus had done things in his home that he had never seen before. And so guess what? When Jesus shows up, the guy who heals your mother-in-law and who presumably Peter, or see, I did it. Simon, Simon saw cast out demons, or he saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw Jesus do miracles. Now all of a sudden Jesus shows up and says, I'll let the nets down. He goes, listen, I've been out all night. They're not biting. 
but I've seen you do some crazy stuff, so okay, let's try it one more time. And here's why I think that happened. Because Jesus invested in Simon and his family. He was willing to listen to Jesus. Because of what Jesus had done previously in Simon's life, he was willing to listen to Jesus at this moment. And so guess what? What happens? If you know the story, it's kind of crazy, right? Verse 6, it just says, And at this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. These were the nets. They were just cleaning because they were done, right? They, they throw the net back in, and it's so full, it's beginning to tear. That means they've never caught this many fish before. This was the first time they've caught this many. Verse 7, it says, A shout of help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. This was the biggest payday for them ever. They had never caught this many fish. So they call their, their buddies. They say, come over. We need help. Verse 8, it says, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh, Lord, please forgive me. Please leave me. I am such a sinful man. Verses 9 and 10, for he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with them, his partners James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were also this moment is the time that the three closest disciples of Jesus decided to follow him. It's because they were out fishing, they were fishermen, and Jesus shows up and it changes their life completely because all of a sudden they catch more fish than ever before. But isn't, isn't Simon's response interesting? He realizes who Jesus is, it changes how he sees things, and he looks at Jesus and he says, you have to leave me. You can't stay here. Because I'm sinful. You're clearly not. You need to go. And can I pause for a minute and say this? Sometimes when we need Jesus the most, we value him the least. Peter should have looked at Jesus and said, sorry, I did it again. Simon should have looked at Jesus and said, I need you with everything I am. And instead, he said, go away. Listen, you and I do this sometimes too. When we need Jesus the most, we decide to push him away. Or when we need people that know Jesus the most, we push them away. And here's why. It's because magnifying our imperfections is always uncomfortable. And when we draw close to Jesus, it means that our imperfections, the problems we have, become magnified. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be. I remember one time as a kid growing up, I, I keep talking about sports. I know, I'm sorry if you don't like sports. But I played a lot of soccer. And so growing up, um, I was good enough to be one of the better players in, like, the Y League or, like, the, like, Little Township League or whatever. So, like, I was fine there. So, um, at some point, my dad got clued into a travel tryout. I guess they were in the middle of the season. It was already late in the season. They lost some kids or something. I don't know. So, my dad got to – he to, told me there was a tryout. So, he said, why don't we just go try it and see how it goes. And then at that tryout, it was very clear to me that I was not as good as these kids. I couldn't do the same drills. I didn't have the same skills. They were further along than me. And so I went through that practice. It was fine. I remember getting home a couple days later. My dad sat me down. He goes, listen, they said you might be able to make the team, but you're probably not going to play very much. He said, so we can do that. We can talk that through if you want to do that. But he said, or you can go back to playing where you were, and you can play a lot. And I said, let's go where I can play a lot. That was what I, I just want to have fun. But in that moment, at that practice, I knew I wasn't that good, at least in that setting. And so I said, I, 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 don't, I don't really want to be in that setting because I'm recognizing I don't, I don't match up. I'm not good enough. 
the incredible thing is, right, Jesus doesn't look at Simon and say, you're right, let's take the boat in and you go away. In fact, it says this in verse 10, Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. He says, no, 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 you, Simon, you don't need me to go away. You need me. And even though you're right, you're a sinner, you're not good enough, you don't match up, he goes, I have a job for you. Like, let's, let's have this change forever. And let's do something that will be incredible. Here's what happened for Simon. When Jesus made sense in Simon's context, it changed his life. Listen, I've said this already. Jesus had been to Simon's house. Simon saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. He saw Jesus presumably do other miracles and cast out demons. And yet, Simon didn't believe yet until... Jesus spoke his language. And then when the fish came into the boat, it changed everything about what Simon believed because he had to see it in his context, not somebody else's. In verse 11, it says this, And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. So Peter, Simon, James, and John, they all decide to follow Jesus, as soon as those boats got back to land, they were like, we're out, we're going, let's go. This is incredible, by the way, because they just had the biggest payday they've ever had. And they go, I'm out. Let's go follow this guy. It's incredible. And so what do we do with this? This is the first calling of the disciples. We'll see some others uh, later. But in this moment, Jesus gives us the framework of exactly what the job of a disciple is. And the very first thing we want to say about the marks of a disciple is, number one is this, that they seek the lost, or we would seek the lost. And one of the ways that we would say that here at GFC is that followers of Jesus invite others to follow Jesus. That's one of the marks of a disciple, is that we would come to know Jesus, and then we would be the ones looking at other people saying, do you want to follow Jesus as well? And the way Jesus says it in this passage is he says, I know that you're fishermen, I know that you go after fish, but let's forget the fish. That's easy. Let's go after people. And in saying that and recognizing the first disciples recognize that and, and take the, they trade in their boat and start following Jesus, we have to recognize and say this is part of our job too. But this is one of the hardest jobs of a disciple. This is one of the most difficult things. And you might be sitting there and you might be thinking this. How do we become fishers of people in a sea that seems to have no fish? This is what Peter, This is what Simon said. Jesus, I've been out all night. I, there's no fish. We, we could turn and maybe even say that. We could turn and say, look, look at the world around us. Nobody wants Jesus. They don't want him. They're upset at him. They're angry at him. People look at us as followers of Jesus and think certain things about us. They judge us. They call us names. They whatever. People don't want Jesus. So what do I do when it seems like there's no fish in the pond? You know, I want to I want to show you guys something here that's going to be a little bit nerdy. Okay, like we're going to dig into some things. And this is not um, this is not original to me. This thing that I'm going to show you it's a it's a chart of sorts, and I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. It's not original to me. Um, it's something that's being worked on. There's a guy named Mark Sayers who's doing a lot of work on it, an author that's uh, looking at culture and kind of developing. This is something we may come back to in the future, um, but it, it, it's going to help us kind of understand our role and how we fish for people in the world that we live in. 
okay? Because it's changing. Uh, it's different than it's ever been before, and we, we need to understand how to do the fishing, right, if we're going to reach people. And so here's, here's the chart. We'll put it up there for you. Um, so three circles, one, two, and three, they all represent uh, three types of culture, okay? So you, we're, we're moving one to three, okay? So uh, the first one is pre-Christian. So think about the context that we're reading uh, this passage from or anything before. So largely uneducated. It doesn't mean education wasn't around, but not everybody was educated, okay? So think about it this way. Uh, in Jesus' time frame, women were not educated, okay? It, it just didn't happen. So it wasn't fully everyone that's educated was going to, everyone wasn't educated, just that. And mostly polytheistic. So when you look back at history, you look at Greek mythology, you look at even when um, in Acts, when, they, when they're talking about the Oropagus, they're looking at all the different gods, right? And they had this idea where there was a different god responsible for all the different stuff. So if you didn't get rain, it's because the god of rain was angry at you, right? Or the god of sun was angry at you or something. There, there was this idea where you had to please God and there was multiple gods and there was all this kind of stuff. And so that was, that was pre-Christian, obviously, because Jesus wasn't here yet, okay? So that's the idea. Then we get into a Christian culture. So that would be mostly educated, so educate, education catch up, and mostly everybody is educated, and then there's a monotheism largely accepted. This is the framework that our country was founded under. So that's why you see in God we trust, we sing God bless America. The idea of God was just kind of accepted, and even if you didn't follow Jesus, you had this idea that there was just one God who was responsible, and so that wasn't a hard conversation to have with people. Asking them to follow Jesus was a little bit different, but there was this idea of God. And most of us in this room were raised in culture, too. That's kind of where we existed, a Christian culture. A lot of people still went to church. Uh, by the way, Lancaster County is kind of still this. because there's, I mean, everybody goes to church somewhere, at least has a connection, right? So we're kind of still in that. But then there's, there's culture three. And culture three is educated, but here's the thing. Self is most important. And so in culture three, that, that's where we're going. And, and, and this is where Europe and Canada already are. Here's how this works. Uh, Europe gets it. By the way, Europe was the Christian culture before we were, right? So that's how we got here. So Europe gets it. They're, they're uh, culture three. It moves across to Canada, okay? Then it's going to come south on the western side of Canada. So we would already see this in Portland, in Seattle, and then it's going to even come down to San Francisco, LA, like most of uh, California already there, then it's going to move east. And, and most of the major cities are already there. So Philadelphia, um, New York, Baltimore, all that, they're kind of already there, and then it just kind of grows out from there. And the last place it'll get to is Texas, because Texas will probably secede before it gets there, right? So they're, they're going to hold on to, to culture, too, as long as they can. But here's where we're going. And we know that self is most important. I'll just give you an example, right? If, if you decide that you are a certain gender, whether it's biological or not, that is to be accepted because self is the most important thing. What I see as truth is the most important thing. And so this is where we're going. Now, here's the challenge. By the way, if you have children, I'm going to use my laser pointer on this side, uh, they're probably like 2.5. So our kids, our grandkids, I'll do it over here for this side, right? Our kids, our grandkids, um, our nieces, nephews, whoever, they're probably in two and a half because they probably grew up with someone like us that was firmly entrenched in culture two, but the world is in culture three. 
And so they're hearing what we say or what their grandparents say or what their teachers say or their pastors say, but the world is telling them something else, right? And so they're falling right in the middle there. Now, here's the big challenge. This is why we don't feel like there's any fish in the pond. It's because back when when we were firmly in culture two, we would reach back into culture one to evangelize. We would go back that direction because those people needed Jesus. They thought they knew God, but they really just thought they had these ideas of God. And we would go back and we would maybe even go to third world countries and be like, we're going to tell you about Jesus. We would get on planes, we would get in boats, and we would go. See, those people from culture culture one were never coming back and trying to evangelize culture two. We were always going to them. But here's what's happening. We're trying to evangelize culture three, and they're trying to evangelize us. So the people that have the ideas that are firmly entrenched in culture three are wanting to evangelize other people out of church, out of religion, out of a relationship with Jesus and say, this is what you should believe instead. That's why it feels more difficult to evangelize than ever before. Because it's going back the other direction. So guess what? It just got real hard to fish. Because now the fish bite. And now we've got to figure out how to reach a culture that actually wants nothing to do with Jesus. Now, here's the thing that I'll tell you. Uh, we don't know exactly how to do that. Because we've never had to do it before. This is, hasn't been a reality necessarily before. We've got to learn how to do it. And it hasn't been a reality this way with things like the Internet and things like that to help it spread more so than other times. So the question is, how do we do it? And I just finished watching... Um, the new Top Gun movie the other night. And and I won't spoil the movie for you, but there's a moment in the movie where one of the pilots that's getting ready for the mission says, is this even possible? It's kind of the moment we're looking at right now. Like, is it even possible to reach people in culture three? And the answer that was given in the movie was, it depends on the pilot. And this is what I'll say. It depends on the church. It depends on the person following Jesus and how we're going to interact with people in culture three, whether we're going to be able to reach them or not. And the same thing that worked to reach back into culture one to try and evangelize and tell people about Jesus is not going to get us to culture three. So we've got to be different. But here's the great thing. I think that Jesus in this passage gives us the framework for how to do it. So let's dig in for a minute and learn how to do this, okay? So here's the first thing I want us to understand. Perspective is everything. So there's two extremes to what I just showed you. You could look at that and go, man, this is difficult, and I don't even like culture three, so why are we even going to go after them? They frustrate me. They make me upset. They try and get me to believe things I don't believe. This is just ridiculous, and this is not the culture I grew up in, so why do I want to chase after them? I don't even want anything to do with this. And if that's our, if that's our attitude, we're not going to win many people to Jesus. Or we can look at this and we can say, what an opportunity. Because we're not here by accident at this moment. We were put here on earth in this area at this time to figure this problem out. And either we're going to lean in and we're going to go, yeah, how do we do this? Let's do it to the best of our ability so that we can win as many people as we can because we believe those people need Jesus. Or we can shy away from it. When I was away uh, at my conference a couple weeks ago, one of the things one of the pastors said, this quote will just, it will live in my mind forever. This is what he said. What we see as a collapsing culture, Jesus sees as a ripening harvest. Because we know 
that people need Jesus. It doesn't matter what culture they're in. We need him too. We just look at other people and say, at least we know him. We want them to know him as well. So perspective is everything. We can either get afraid, we get frustrated, we can totally disconnect, or we can lean in and say, what are we going to do? And what are we going to do to teach our kids how to do this in the world they're going to grow up in? So perspective is everything. We've got to be willing to do it. Here's the second thing, and this is where it gets real practical. We need to start to show up and add value without an agenda. Here's what I mean by this, okay? Here's how I would say No one gives their time, money, or energy to anything after hearing about it for the first time. When Becca and I sit at home and we decide we want to watch a movie, we want to watch a show or whatever, she's scrolling through the stuff, and I'm on my phone on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes trying to see if it's actually worth watching or not. And if it's anything less than like a 7 out of 10, I'm not watching it. It's not going to happen. Or if I need to buy something on Amazon, I'm going to go to all the reviews. And I'm going to look at, does this, is this a good product? Is someone telling me it's good? Are the reviews good or are they bad? And if they're bad reviews, I'm not buying it. I'm going to test everything I see. And so here's what we have to start to do. We have to show up and start adding value without an agenda. Jesus did this for Peter. It's why he believed him when he said, throw down the nets. Because Jesus had already showed up, shown up in his life and done something. And at that point, when Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law, he was in his home. He didn't say at that moment, come follow me. He said, I'm, Jesus knew this, right? I'll see you in the boat, uh, Simon. I'll see you in the boat, and then we'll talk. Jesus showed up and, showed up and added value to Simon's life before he asked anything of him. This is the conversation that Pastor Andrew and the elders and I have about how we're going to connect with our community. It's why we're going back to the fair stand. Because when we show up in our community and we offer food at an at a affordable price, people can come and interact with us and we ask nothing from them. Nothing. Now this year we're going to invite them to an event, but they don't have to come to the event to get our soup. We're just going to show up and add value. And say, hey, if you, we're going we're gonna to add value. We're going to give you something we think you would love, we think you need. We're going to do it at an affordable price, and then we're going to invite you and say, if you want to come hang out with us, we would love to get to know you better. But we're going to do that through adding value. You can do this in your personal life as well. Show up in someone's life, add value with no strings attached. Be the person who volunteers when you hear somebody needs to move. Say, I'll come help you. Be the person. Some of you just snickered. You're like, yeah, I don't want to help anybody move. But like, be the person, be that, because someone's going to look at you and go, really? You'll come help me move? And that doesn't mean you have to, the whole time you're helping to move, do you want to know about Jesus? Do you want to know about Jesus? Do you want to know about Jesus? Do you want to know? Like, that's not the point. The point is to say, I'll show up and I will care about you because I love you, because Jesus loves you, and I want you to get to know him. And, and this isn't this isn't a bait and switch, by the way. In fact, I was reading a book this week where there was a guy in 2008 during the recession he owned a company that sold fiberglass pools. During the recession, you don't sell many swimming pools because people don't have the money to put towards a swimming pool. They're trying to keep food on the table. So what did he do? He went to the Internet, and he just started to be the person that would answer questions about fiberglass pools for people who already had them for free. He just opened a forum, said, hey, you know, just started answering questions, went back in the comments, created a little site, started to answer those questions. After that, he used to do like $2 million a year in sales. He did $4.2 million in sales. Why? 
because he showed up and added value without strings attached. So people trusted him when they needed to buy something, they came to him. And here's what's true, more so than any other time this year. Before people trust Jesus, they have to trust you first. They have to. Because they have to believe that it's true in your life and my life before they will believe it about Jesus. And if they don't see it as true in our lives, they're not going to believe it. And so how do you show up and add, create trust in a relationship? You show up and care and add value and love somebody with no strings attached so that you can tell them maybe about Jesus in the future. Here's the third thing. Make Jesus make sense in their context. I told you about this already. Simon didn't believe it until he saw the fish in the boat. And in verse 5, just to read it to you again, Master Simon replied, We worked hard all of last night and didn't catch anything. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down. This is the conversation you want to have with somebody. This is the way you want it to make sense. You want to show up long enough that eventually when you are the one who can offer hope to people, they'll listen. That's what Jesus was offering Simon at this moment. Simon knew Jesus was different. He knew he had something up his sleeve, maybe. So he says, you know what? I'll believe you because I've seen what you can do. And I had no hope last night. I caught nothing. But now that you're saying to let down the nets, I'll do it. And here's what I know is true. Maybe this is the most obvious statement ever. People are tired. It's been a long three years. It's been a frustrating three years. And life is much different today than it was three years ago. By the way, those three circles I just showed you, that was already coming before COVID, that, but COVID accelerated it a thousand percent. It just happened. And people are tired and frustrated, but here's what I think is true. But if they trust you, they will listen to the hope you are offering. When they trust you, they'll listen when you tell them about Jesus. Doesn't mean they're going to get saved on the spot. Doesn't mean their life is going to change in a moment. But it does mean that they'll hear you because they trust you. And you get to offer hope at a time when many people are having a very difficult day. That sentiment from Peter, I've been out all night and I've caught nothing. That, that is relevant for our culture. I, I've been at this all day. I've been trying so hard. I've been trying to do the right. And I am just worn out. I don't know where to turn. And that's what we get the opportunity to say. Have you thought about Jesus? Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about the hope he's given me in my life. And here's, here's number four, last thing. Let Jesus work. Let me take a lot, let me take a lot maybe of the onus off us. I've, I've heard pastors say, you could be responsible for somebody spending eternity in hell. That is a false statement, and it's a manipulative statement. Don't do that. Because we are not the people who save people. Jesus is. So listen, we get to let Jesus work. Here's the best way I think to say this. We are the ambassadors, but Jesus is the miracle worker. Jesus is the one that's going to do the saving. So we just get to be the ones who get to represent him. We get to be the ones that tell people about him. He then gets to do the work. Our responsibility is when Jesus shows up and says, throw the net into the water, we say, okay, I'll throw the net into the water. Whatever comes back from the net is Jesus' responsibility. That's our job. And so we just have to be willing, even when we feel like there's no fish, even when we tried this spot in the lake before, even though we were out all night trying and trying and trying and trying, Jesus says, one more time, one more time. You say, okay, I'll try one more time. That's our job. 
So it's not our job to save anybody. It's just our job to be the ones willing to cast the net and say, I will follow Jesus in this moment. And ultimately, what I think we realize is that Jesus calls us to something much greater than ourselves. And this is what verse 11 says again. Remember this. As soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Now hear me. Some of you, when I put up that slide, when we put up, Megan put up that slide for you a minute ago, it just said, people are tired. You said, yup, that's me. I'm tired, Corey. I'm exhausted. I've got so much going on. I'm just trying to get by. Listen, I get it. And I, we are blessed with all the things we have, and we are blessed with all the children we have. But I get it. Right now, we have a two-year-old that will not stay in bed, okay? And he ends up in our bed every night. I'm tired, too. I don't do well with tiny humans sleeping in my space. I just don't, okay? We get it. And then I show up, Pastor Corey shows up on a Sunday morning that you lost an hour of sleep and says, Jesus calls us to something greater. And you're like, I'm just trying to survive today. I get it. But listen, at some point we got to the space where we were all in for Jesus, so excited to follow him. Do what he calls me. And then at some point we changed and said, I'm just trying to get to bed. Listen, that's not what a disciple of Jesus does. And I say that as lovingly and as understandingly, if that's what, as I can. I know that this is hard. I know that it can be, it can feel exhausting. And when something pings in the back of our mind and, and it's Jesus showing up and saying, cast the net, go help somebody move. Go love somebody. Go out of your way for somebody else. You just go, I just need to do me. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes we have to be willing to say, I'm going to do the hard thing even when I think it's not going to work. And this is the way I would, I would say this. Can we start to dream of what Jesus might do like we are kicking them? Can we go back to our mindset when we were little kids and we dream the biggest things? Can we start to dream that way when we think about what God might do in our lives? When we look at verse 11, it says, The boats got back to shore, and they just left everything to follow him. Doesn't that feel like a childish thing to do? Like, you just made the most money you've ever made in a day. Logic says, let's go back the next day. Logic says, let's not, let's not follow Jesus. Let's pay Jesus to stay here so that every day we just catch this many fish. Then the business model will work really well. I hope that James and John, their dad, Zebedee, I hope that he was around to see this. Because if, if he wasn't, and James and John get off the boat, and they go back, they say, Dad, we caught the most fish we've ever caught. He goes, awesome. They say, we quit. He said, what are you doing? I'm, we're following that guy. He goes, why? Right? Because they saw something that was made. They, they were willing to take a step that didn't make any sense at all to leave behind the most money they've just made, to leave it all behind because they saw what Jesus would do. And they dreamed something that was different than just, I'm going to be a fisherman the rest of my life. They didn't settle. They decided they were going to follow him. So that's the challenge for us. We can settle all day and all night. Or we can dream and believe that when Jesus asks us to throw the net into the water, he's got a reason. And even when we pull that net up, time and time again, there's nothing. One day, there might be something incredible. It's our job to show up and just say, I'll throw the net. And I'm just going to pray about what the net will be. 
I'm going to show up and I'm going to add value to people's lives without an agenda. I'm just going to be the kind of person they can trust. So when they're tired and they're frustrated and they're upset, they can come to me and I can tell them about Jesus. Or when we have an opportunity and it just starts to go that way and they ask me about church or they ask me about my small group or they ask me about what I believe or what I think is going on in culture, I can just step in and I can say, this is what I believe. Why? Because Jesus loves me and I believe he loves you and I want to tell you about him. In that moment, if they trust us, is the way we've shown up and built relationships going to make all the difference. And that's our job. And so here, here's just a couple of things to think about. I haven't said anything about it for a while, but we challenged you to be praying four things at 4.15. We talked about that at the beginning of the year, and the first thing we said to pray was one for one person to follow Jesus. For one person you know that you don't think knows Jesus to start following Jesus. we got to keep praying for that. And pray that God would give us an aha moment or a duh moment or an obvious moment where it's just like, this is my opportunity to tell them about Jesus. But part of this job, too, is not just praying about it, but putting our faith into action and saying, I'm going to show up for that person. I'm going to be there for them. I'm going to build that trust. I'm going to build that relationship. Because I believe Jesus loves them. And I love them, too. And I want them to know him. And the other thing we can do is we can start to plan about who we're going to invite to Easter. There was a statistic a while ago, I don't know if it's exactly true anymore, but it was 80% of people would be willing to go to church if they were invited by someone they trusted. 80%. Even 50 would be a good option. I'd be like, hey, just throw it out there, right? But 80%. If we know somebody that doesn't know him, let's invite him. And I'm not saying invite him so that I can do all the work for you. I'll tell them about Jesus, right? We're going to have that conversation that day. But here's what's true. You can reach someone in your context for Jesus better than I can. Better than Pastor Andrew can. Better than anybody else. Better than Dan can, right? Anybody that was up there. You have the opportunity in your context with the people you know, your coworkers, your family members, your classmates, your teammates, whoever it is, your neighbors, you have the opportunity to make Jesus make sense like he made it make sense for Simon in the boat better than I can. And that's why we need everybody. It doesn't work just to say, I'm going to invite them in church and then we'll figure out. No, no, no. You invite them in to help them have the conversation and then we'll have the conversation about Jesus and then you get to have that conversation with them. What do you want to do with Jesus? How do you want to do this? Let's talk about it. So who are you inviting? Who am I inviting? Who am I reaching? How am I making this make sense? Seeking the lost is something we have to be committed to doing. And it's not an easy road. And we're going into uncharted territory. And there's a lot of people there who don't want anything to do with Jesus. But if we love them and they trust us, and we show up time and time again, and we can offer them hope, it's going to change the way they see him. It's going to change the way they see us. That's how we reach people. And that's how we fish for people. By showing up, building trust, building relationship, making it make sense, and offering the hope that Jesus has. Let's pray. Jesus, we talked about some tough things today. And and one of the fears people have is, 
telling others about you. Like we, we say we don't know what to do, we don't know how to do it, we don't know the words to say. It's awkward. What if they? What if they reject us? And and I just ask that you would help us to make this super practical. That our perspective would be that we have an opportunity at this point in history to charge into culture three and to love those people as much as we possibly can. And that we would show up in ways that add value, that make sense, that build trust, and and that you would lead us in these conversations where people need to have hope and we need to offer them that. And I just ask that you would give us those moments clearly and that you would help us to know what to say spirit move through us in those moments. And I, I ask that, you know, there's a bunch of us in this room who as we think about praying for one person to follow Jesus, there's all kinds of names that come to mind. I ask for all of those names that you would give us opportunities to have conversations in the next month or so. And even that our commitment would be that we would just say, hey, would you, would you come to church with us? have a conversation about Jesus with you. Even if that net comes back empty that day, that we wouldn't be discouraged and we would continue time and time again to throw the net when you call us to. We thank you for the faith of Simon and James and John and the way that they saw you and they, they said, I'm out of here. I want you with me. God, I pray that you would instill a little bit of that truth get bogged down by to-do lists, this, that, the other thing, that we would just be ready to move like you said, when we're tired, frustrated, exhausted.